If you were here this morning, you know this is part two of what we started this morning. We started a two-part lesson on heaven or hell. And this morning we talked about heaven or hell, heaven and hell, what they were like. Uh, heaven, we found, is indescribably wonderful place, a place of glory. Hell is unimaginably horrible, a place of torment, is what the Bible says. Uh, both of them are real and eternal. We established all that this morning and said that we'd come back tonight and tell you who will be there, who will be in heaven and who will be in hell. And I've had people hardly wait to get their hands on the list. Uh, they want to know. Uh, some of them ask me, do you have a list? I want to hear the names. I do have a list. Uh, let's just get started on it and we'll see how long this takes. Uh, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11, Jesus said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. All right, write those down. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We got the first three. Uh, I assume from Matthew 17 that Moses and Elijah are in heaven since they came back for the Mount of Transfiguration event, so we're up to five. Uh, the story of Lazarus and the rich man says Lazarus is going to be there, so we're up to six. That leaves 143,993 plus a multitude. Uh, and I don't do that to be funny. That's about all you can find in the Bible that specifically says somebody's going to be in heaven. Uh, hell is even less abundant in the specifics in the Bible. Uh, the same story about the rich man and Lazarus. We're pretty sure the rich man's going to be in the bad place uh, because he went there to the place of torment. And really the only other one is Judas. And it, Jesus did talk about Judas. John seventeen twelve was the only one that was lost, and he was a son of perdition, which is a son of destruction, a son of hell, basically. Um, so about two that the Bible specifically says by name will be in hell. Now, obviously, we can't go much further there. And obviously, I don't have a list. I don't know who's in the book of life. Uh, but I can give you some generalities. And I started out on this to say, okay, here's what the Bible says about who's in heaven. Here's what it says about who's in hell. And I decided that was kind of redundant. Uh, we'll, we'll just talk about heaven and everybody else is in the other place. So we'll, we'll go through heaven to, to get started with. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. And lay our groundwork. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. All right, here's what Paul says to the Christians in Ephesus. And we're going to read nine verses, basically. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. All right, classic scripture there tells us a lot, a lot of theology in there. And Paul talks about the two groups that we're talking about tonight. And he uses terms like of the world and following the prince of this world and uh, wicked and all of those things. And then he says, but you, Christians, you've been saved. You've been saved by grace through faith. And it's not anything you did to earn it. Now, when I said I lay our foundation, that's where we got to start. Because sometimes we get confused and we start making our lists and saying, well, if you do this, you go to the good place. You do this, you go to the bad place. Okay. Uh, that's not what Paul talks about here. He talks about people who are saved and people who are not. And the people who are saved didn't do anything to deserve it or earn it. They've been given it by the grace of God. Now, there's obviously a little more to it, but that foundation is where we got to start. Uh, the Bible is full of dualities like we talked this morning. Uh, heaven or hell, dark or light, good or evil, wicked or righteous. It also is very clear that you got two choices on how you decide to get to heaven. You can try it by law, or you can try it by grace. You can try it on your own, or you can try it with Jesus Christ. That's the two options, grace or law. Now, some people look at all of this and read all the things that I'm going to read to you tonight, and somehow, because, I guess because John Calvin did a long, long time ago, and everybody thinks he found the answer, they talk about it being unconditional. So let's talk about that just a second. What I'm going to tell you tonight, it's either conditional or unconditional, how you get to heaven. A Calvinist, Reformed theology, says it's unconditional. God selects who's going to heaven. God picks them, he sends them, that's it. Okay, nothing you can do about it. You're not able to do anything about it. It's unconditional. That doesn't agree with all the things we're going to read tonight. It's conditional. And I know the Bible does talk about God's sovereignty and his deciding and all of this, but God has sovereignly decided how we're going to be saved because nobody's worthy of it. There are no righteous I don't have time to go into all that, but there's no way anybody deserves to go to hell. We all deserve to go to hell. But God decided that he would 
have a way that we could be saved. And he sovereignly decided, here's the way that they can be saved. Now, anybody that accepts those conditions can be saved. And like I said, that's whole sermon or two all by itself, but let's just start off understanding it's conditional who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. So, who goes to heaven? And I put a lot of scriptures on here for you. We're not going to do a standard salvation kind of sermon. Most of you know the the first part of this. I want to get to the second part and reinforce some things. We know that we're saved by faith. Just read that in Ephesians. Saved by grace through faith, and faith has been the way forever. A lot of people call and know your Bible and say, well, how were people in the Old Testament saved? Well, the same way we are. They, they had faith in God. Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Same way we're saved today. We would believe. Acts chapter 16, verse 30, 31, the Philippian jailer. He said, what do I got to do? And they answered him, well, you believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. That's the answer. Okay? Now, some people get confused there, and we got to spend a little time on that. I've put something on your handout, the word for faith, the concept of faith in the Bible, has got two parts, and it's always got two parts when it talks about saving faith. The the first part is assent, and the way I describe that is that's believing that something is true. I believe that there's a God. I believe that his son was Jesus. That's the assent part. A whole lot of people do that. In fact, I'll give you a secret. Even the demons believe that. Hey, James 2.19. Uh, even the demons believe that there's a God. They believe that Jesus is his son. But that's as far as they go. They don't get to the second part, and a lot of people today don't get to the second part of biblical faith, which is trust. And I described that on your handout as belief in someone. I believe that there's a God, but I also believe that he rewards me. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, and I'm willing to trust him. I will believe in him. I will trust him to do that. That's the second part of faith. Now, when I believe in him, I'll do whatever he says. I'll give it over to him. I'll do all those things that are included in obedience and all that. But that's what faith is. Believing that and believing in for our salvation. And what I put down here under those who have received salvation are the clear statements in the New Testament that you can't argue with. We're saved by faith. We're also saved by repentance, which is something different. Luke chapter 13, verse 3 and verse 5 says, Unless you repent, you'll perish. Now, sometimes we gloss over this. Sometimes we gloss over all these. But they're serious. A repentance, best way to describe it is what I put on here, a change of mind toward sin. You go from loving sin or not being bothered by sin to hating sin. That's repentance. 
You've got to change your mind about sin. That's different than faith, folks. And it says, unless you repent, unless you change your mind, your attitude about sin, then you're going to perish. Third thing is confession. Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. You, you've got to tell people. You've got to say it. You've got to let people know that you trust in Jesus. And the last one is baptism, Acts 2.38. People asked Peter what they were supposed to do, and he said, you you need to repent and be baptized. And two things will happen. You'll get the double cure, if you want to call it that. We sing about that sometimes. You'll get your forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to help you in your new life, to make you a new creature. Colossians chapter 2.12 includes both of them. It says we're buried with him and we're raised with him. We're buried with him. That puts us in contact with his death, with his blood that eliminates our sins. And then we're raised with him, with the Holy Spirit in us. That's when it happens. And then we're empowered to live the Christian life. We're a new creature in him. So the Bible talks about all those things as conditions of receiving salvation. And some people point at one or some of them and say, well, that's a work. Can't be saved by doing something. No, none of them are works. None of them earn you anything. It's just what the Bible says is the condition of receiving the free gift of grace. So that part we know pretty much. Now here's where we get confused sometimes. Not just those who receive salvation, but those who stay saved is the way I put it. Okay? Now, And this we sometimes get messed up, I think, a little bit. The verses I put down there, I put down four of them. John 8.31 says, if you continue in my word, you'll be true disciples. John chapter 15, Jesus talked about he was the vine and we are the branches. And he said, if you abide in me, you have to stay in me, be part of me. 1 Corinthians 15, he said, if you hold fast to the gospel that I preached you, if you hold fast to that, if not, you believed in vain. In Colossians 1, 21, 23, it says, if you continue in your faith. Okay. Now, that means we have to, let's translate it, that means we have to continue, abide, hold fast, continue in whatever saved us. Okay. Paul said, hold fast to the gospel that I preached to you. What's the gospel? The good news is that Jesus died for us, and if we trust in him, we receive the free gift of salvation. He says, hold fast to that. Now, when I say we get confused sometimes, is because we take those verses and a few others and start to make them something a whole lot bigger than that. Sometimes we amplify it and say, Okay, now, if you, 
continue to have perfect attendance. Okay? If you continue to have acceptable, not sinless, because we know everybody sins a little bit, but acceptable behavior. And here's our list of acceptable behaviors, by the way. If you continue to have those acceptable behaviors, if you continue to have perfect doctrine, well, not perfect doctrine, but really close to my doctrine, if you continue in all that, then you'll stay saved. And some of you don't know what I'm talking about because you're too young or too new in the church or, or something. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And the point I want to make is that's not the Bible. Bible is what I just read you. If you continue in the belief, in the trust, in the good news, if you continue in what saved you, and what saved you, that's why we started with Ephesians. Nothing you did, nothing you figured out, and no scripture that you analyzed, nothing saved you but the grace of God. You accepted that by meeting God's conditions, and what saved you then was your belief in Him, grace through faith, and how do you stay saved? Well, you keep having grace through faith. You stay in Christ. You abide in Him. You continue in that Word. You hold fast to that gospel. Now, when you receive salvation, the way the Bible describes it, you get your name written in the book of life. Okay? I don't know how he keeps the books, but that's what he says. He writes your name in the book of life. Now, when it gets erased, I don't know. I don't know how he does that. So, and that's my problem because I can't see. And that's why we come up with all those other things. We think, okay, we'll watch some physical stuff. We'll see how he behaves. We'll see how often he comes to church. We'll see how much he gives. We'll see what he believes. And if he kind of looks okay to us, then we guess his name's still on the book of life. We can't see his heart. In general, we can't see when somebody quits trusting in Jesus. Now, sometimes we can because they'll tell us. You know, some people come to that point. I don't believe that foolishness anymore. I'm going back to the world. I'm happier there. I don't need Jesus. I'm going to do it my way. Okay, if they tell us that, we can kind of believe them, I guess. But if, unless they tell us that, we don't know. Well, God knows. God knows exactly who still trusts in him. Okay. Now, let me add to that the fact, and this will help explain it, I hope. Let me add to that the fact that there's going to be some surprises. Okay. 
I could make a really good list of all the people I know and whether I think they're going to be in heaven or hell. I would be surprised. I'm sure I'd be wrong about some of them. Might be wrong about all of them. I don't know, but I'm going to be wrong about some of them. There's going to be surprises, and I know that because Jesus said there's going to be some surprises. He said in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, he said, Not everybody, not everybody that calls me Lord, Lord, is coming into heaven. And he says, when I give that judgment, they're going to argue with me. You know, that, that's going to be quite a scene. I kind of want to watch that. He says there's going to be people argue. When he makes that division that we talked about this morning, there's going to be some on the side that are going to the place of torment that say, hold it, whoa, I did this and I did this and I did this. What am I in this group for? And Jesus says, I'm going to say, I never knew you. They thought they were doing the right things. They thought they were doing what it took, but they never did what we just went through. They never trusted in Jesus. They never changed their attitude about sin. They may have done some of the things that, in fact, they probably did do some of the things that we say that we can see and that they are important. But if they get dunked and don't trust in Jesus and don't change their attitude about sin, Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. I realize this is kind of harsh, but... That's what we're talking about. We're talking about big things here. We're talking about eternal things. So there's going to be some surprises. And let me finish up with at least three things that I think are going to cause some of those surprises. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians 6, and let's start in verse 9. Okay, Paul says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so we could put that on our list. And we could say, okay, people that I see doing those things are sinners. The problem is the next verse. The next verse, Paul says, that's what you guys in Corinth were. That's who you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul wrote this in about 55 A.D. supposedly. What if we had gone to Corinth in 50 A.D.? 
and met all these folks, what list would I put them on? You, You do what? Whoa, okay. You're on that side. You're out. You do what? You, you practice that? That's how you make your living? Okay. You're out. Okay, see, when I say sinners is one thing that we're going to be surprised about, number one, we don't know the whole life. We, we don't know what caused it. We, we don't know anything. All we see is some external behavior, and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or Ten years from now or, or whatever else. And I'm not saying that uh, justifies doing wrong. I'm just saying there are going to be surprises because we judge totally from outward appearances. That there are going to be nothing but sinners in heaven. Saved sinners. Yeah, I mean, we can say that heaven and hell, I can tell you the list, oh, it's sinners and saints. Well, saints are saved sinners. There are going to be sinners everywhere. And sometimes we we don't get that right. Okay. Second thing I put down, let's turn over to Second Peter. I called it maturity. I think it's something we need to make sure we understand. Second Peter chapter one verse three. Great passage. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." That's people who have received salvation is what he's talking about. Through his divine power, we've been saved. And we get to become partakers of the divine nature. We talked about being in the presence of God in heaven and all of that. Now, verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that verse says? That says you've been saved by the grace of God. Now that you are saved, what you ought to do, so you'll be more effective as a Christian, is start adding virtue, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. Start adding these things so you'll be more effective. It does not say get to this level of maturity so you can get into heaven. It says you've been saved, now grow up. Well, we look at people 
who are so immature. And we think, that's not Christian. How are they going to get in? You don't get in by perfectly mature. You're more effective here. You're better as the body of Christ the more mature you get. But we look at people that have some really immature behaviors and ideas and attitudes and compare them to our wonderful maturity. You think, I don't know if they're going to get in or not. That's why we started with Ephesians. It tells us what gets us in. The last one I put down, Romans 14.4. You don't have to look it up if you don't want to. It just says, who are you to judge another man's servant? And I, call, I said one of the reasons for some surprises when we get there, I call it bad judgment. I might call it insufficient knowledge or... Uh, Poor judgment or harsh judgment or something, but it's bad judgment. And Romans 14 is all about that, judging others. And after Paul discusses it for a while, he says, who are you to judge another man's servant? The master will judge him. Now, I know that doesn't mean that we can't state facts or the truth or teach the right thing and all that, but we get pretty judgmental about certain things that we can't find in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. We're saved by grace. And I'm not saying we shouldn't strive for the most knowledge we can get and the best behavior we can get and the most Christ-like attitude and all that. That's what we do. But we sometimes look at people and judge them from our time, our understanding, our knowledge, our scholarship, the tools that we have to study the Bible with, the fact that we have a Bible, our practices, our traditions. We we look at all these things and say, well, that guy sure got it wrong. He's sure not doing right. And maybe he isn't. But the master will judge him just fine. Let me illustrate with one story and then we'll close. And, and I hesitate to tell this. I don't want you to take it the wrong way. I'm not saying anything and everything is just fine, and don't worry about it. But let me just tell you a true story. Uh, I did some genealogy stuff, and my grandfather, 14 generations back, old Thomas Tandy, died in 1588. Okay, this guy lived in England around the time Luther was operating. He lived, died just a few years before King James had the Bible translated. He lived just 100 plus years after Gutenberg printed the first Bible. He lived less than 100 years after the first English Bible 
Bible in his language was printed. He didn't have one. I've got a copy of his will, and there's no Bible listed in it. His son, John, who died in 1639, he did have one Bible, along with some brass candlesticks and a few other things in his estate. So old Thomas probably didn't have a Bible. He also lived in a time around where the Anglican Church was coming into existence instead of Catholicism and all that. I don't, he's buried in the churchyard. I hadn't been there. I'd like to go there sometime. It's an Anglican church now, but I don't know what it was back then. It was probably more Catholic than Anglican. Anyhow, he lived in that time. And here's what he wrote in his will. And John's is almost exactly the same. I think he copied his dad's, but he changed a few things. But they sound pretty similar. I, Thomas Tandy, on this date, sick and weak in body, but of a good and perfect memory, thanks be given to Almighty God, do make this my last will and testament in manner following. I commend my soul into the hand of Almighty God, my Creator, and to Jesus Christ, my only Redeemer, by whose merits I hope to be saved, only and by none other means, and my body to be buried after my death in the churchyard of Upton. Did you catch that middle part? I commend my soul into the hand of Almighty God, my Creator, and to Jesus Christ, my only Redeemer, by whose merits I hope to be saved only and by none other means. That sounds a little like Ephesians. That sounds a whole lot like Ephesians chapter 2. Now, if, if you told me what Thomas did and how he worshipped and what he believed and what he understood and his theologies of this and that. He was probably dumber than the brass candlesticks. He didn't have a Bible. He believed what the vicar told him. He did all sorts of things that I would be aghast at, I bet. How often he was able to get out of the fields and make it to church, I don't know. But the old boy trusted in God and Jesus. Now, I'm not saying with the knowledge I've got and the time I live in and the scholarship that's available to me and all that, that I can just say, I believe in God and Jesus, I'm okay. I'm not telling you that. I'm just telling you about the surprises in heaven. And when I get there, I'm not going to be a bit surprised to see old Thomas. He didn't have a Bible to read. But he figured this much out. There's going to be some surprises. But... It's not ours to worry about that or argue about it or pontificate on it. It's ours to do what we know to do. 
to receive salvation and to stay saved, to be as effective and productive as we can as Christians. But understanding these two concepts of heaven and hell and who's going to be there and how and why, I hope has been helpful today. The lesson is yours. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation some way, we're going to sing a song and invite you to come. The song is to Canaan's land. I'm on my way. Uh, I, I do a whole sermon on just the terms we give to heaven. Uh, so many of them in our songs, and Canaan's land is one of them. I go back to Abraham and the promised land and all of that. Uh, that's the way the Bible thinks about heaven sometimes and the way this song is written. So let's think about our Canaan land we're heading to as we sing this. If you need to come, come.